Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest today on the show is Gordon Logie. He is a Earth observation scientist currently working at a company called Spark Geo. And today on the podcast, he's going to help us understand a lot more about the differences between multispectral and hyperspectral Earth observation data. Got a few quick messages before we get started today. The first one being I am in the middle of publishing a, a series of episodes in partnership with Foursquare. So please keep an eye out for those. And I also want to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Synergize. So Synergize, the people behind, or the, the company, I should say, behind Sentinel Hub, help make this podcast episode possible. And the interesting thing about working with, with Synergize was they were so clear on the fact that I'm not here to talk about them, that, uh, that the idea here is to grow the pie by sharing knowledge, by educating people, as opposed to me getting on here and telling you how great they are. That said, I'm going to do it anyway. Because I, I, I had Gregor, the CEO of Sentinel Hub, on the podcast some time ago, and it was a fantastic episode. It would be well worth you checking out. If you're interested in Earth observation and are not familiar with the work that Sentinel Hub does, please check out the link in the show notes. So yeah, this episode is sponsored by Synergize as part of the Copernicus data science ecosystem. So the idea here is to share knowledge to grow the pie, and I'm, I'm really grateful for their support. Hi Gordon, welcome to the podcast. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about multispectral Earth observation data and a lot about hyperspectral Earth observation data. But before we get there, would you mind just introducing yourself to the listeners, please? For sure. Thanks very much for having me. So my name is Gordon Logie. I'm a data scientist currently working at uh, Spark Geo. We're a, a geospatial consulting company. And my background is in remote sensing, uh, data science, machine learning, uh, that type of thing. So uh, b before we you know, move on and talk about multispectral and hyperspectral, would you mind just sort of giving us a little bit of background here? H how did you get involved in this? How did you get involved in Earth observation and, of course, being a, a data scientist? Sure. When I was in university, I got involved uh, with a, a program here in southern Alberta, Canada, called the Amethyst Program, and it was really targeted at remote sensing and actually specifically uh, hyperspectral remote sensing. I got involved with the program probably back in 2010, and I did a series of internships uh, both at the university and in government. And that kind of shaped my career from, from then on out. I ended up doing my master's uh, at the University of Lethbridge, and I did it in remote sensing. And then thereafter, I got a job at a precision agriculture company called Farmer's Edge, where I worked as a remote sensing scientist and then senior remote sensing scientist, and then eventually as the manager of the remote sensing team. And so I was there from 2016 to 2021, and then I started at Spark Geo in the summer of 2021. Wow. Okay. So you, you've got a, a lot of history in the space. Interesting that you, you started off working with, with hyperspectral data. Was that just by accident or was that something that, that you were interested in? I wish I could say that it was, you know, something that I'd really planned out. It was really a, a matter of an opportunity being there and, and kind of, you know, seizing, seizing that opportunity. And then I sort of was like, okay, I, I like this stuff. I'll, you know, keep, keep learning about it. And 
there's a, a certain inertia, I guess, to it. But, you know, I'm, I'm happy that things worked out the way they did. It's, it's very interesting to me. So the promise right at the start of this episode was we're going to talk a little bit about multispectral and a lot about hyperspectral. And the idea here is to help people understand, you know, what is this hyperspectral stuff? So if it's okay with you, I'd like to start with, with some definitions. Would you mind you know, giving us a sort of really loose definition of multispectral data? What, what do you think of when you think of multispectral Earth observation data? So when you're thinking about multispectral imaging and hyperspectral imaging also, I think it's helpful to think about how the human eye works. So if we refresh ourselves on some grade school physics, light from the sun is being transmitted in the form of photons. And each one of these photons is vibrating at a specific frequency, which we describe as its wavelength. So these photons coming from the sun aren't all at one wavelength, though. It's actually this, this big mess of photons that are all vibrating at different wavelengths. And that's the light that enters our atmosphere and then reflects off something and then into our eyes. So our eyes have these special cells called cones, which are sensitive to light uh, across a specific range of wavelengths which we call visible light because it's visible to us. So we have three different types of cone cells, which are each sensitive to a range of different wavelengths, which allows us to see red, green, and blue colors. Even though each photon reaching our eye may have a slightly different wavelength, our eyes can't separate the differences between photons that have very similar wavelengths. So for example, if the wavelength of two photons differs by a small amount, but both are within the sensitivity range of our blue cone cells, then we're going to perceive both as appearing blue. So a multispectral sensor is very similar to how our eyes work. We have spectral bands that are like our different rod cells, our cone cells, sorry. And each band is sensitive across a different range of wavelengths. So within the band's sensitivity range, it's going to treat all the light as being identical, essentially. So that's what we call the bandwidth of the band. It's that sensitivity range. But unlike our eyes, of course, multispectral sensors can have more than just three bands in visible light. We can measure many different bands, including light that's actually not visible to our eyes, like in the UV or the infrared spectrum. Now, the difference then between hyperspectral and multispectral is really that hyperspectral sensors have a lot more bands with a much narrower bandwidth. So now, instead of having three different types of cone cells, imagine suddenly you have 200 different types, and each is sensitive over a very narrow range of wavelengths. So then instead of looking at a leaf and just seeing the whole thing is green, you can tell, well, actually, this part of the leaf reflects a bit more light in this part of the green spectrum, while this part over here maybe reflects a bit more in this other part of the green spectrum. So essentially, you have access to this much greater level of detail of information about the leaf. So the, the key science underpinning spectral remote sensing is that things reflect light differently depending on their physical characteristics. So if we can measure something's reflectance, then that allows us to derive information about it. So returning again to our leaf, we know that when a leaf dies, it changes color from green to red. And this is because there's chlorophyll in the leaf, which is performing photosynthesis, and it absorbs a lot of visible light, but red light in particular. So as that chlorophyll breaks down, we end up having greatly increased red reflectance. So then we see it 
changing from green to red. So we can see that with our eyes, but there's actually a part of the spectrum called the red edge, which is just a narrow zone of wavelengths. It's just outside of our visible red range. And when leaves start to die, they actually will undergo a change first in that red edge range. So if we have these hyperspectral eyes, if we have cones in that red edge range, we can then detect the leaf dying off earlier than, than we can just with our, our regular eyes. And this is all assuming that your brain doesn't just melt from having that extra visual information content. Well, I would like some hyperspectral eyes just to try this out. Thanks very much. Like, I was, of course, I was going to ask you about, okay, what's the definition for hyperspectral? But I, I really appreciate you rolling them into one. It makes it a lot easier to understand. If I could try and summarize here just for a second. So now when I think about multispectral, I think about, firstly, I'm thinking about a, a passive sensor. And you can tell me if that's right or wrong later on. But I'm also thinking about sort of thick bands, broad bands within the spectrum where, where reflectance is being you know, binned together. So these broad bins and not necessarily touching. Again, you can tell me later on if, if I'm right or wrong. But when I think about hyperspectral, I think of almost a continuous collection across the, the spectrum. And maybe where there, there's no gaps or perhaps it's even overlapping. Okay, how, how much of that did I get wrong or right? I think you nailed it. Yeah. You're right. So with your multispectral bands, it's this broad swath of different wavelengths. And uh, you're basically any light uh, within that wavelength range, you're treating basically the same. There's an advantage there. It lets you collect a lot more light, but the disadvantage is that you, you kind of lose the ability to separate different wavelengths. But you're also right that multispectral sensors, not necessarily, but typically the bands will be separated by kind of a, a spectral gap. So there'll be a range of wavelengths that no band is sensitive to on that sensor. Whereas with hyperspectral, they're much narrower and they're contiguous, meaning that they are basically where one band ends, the next begins. The sensitivity range of one ends, the next one begins. And they might even, in some cases, overlap a little bit in their bandwidths. You end up with something that isn't quite a continuous spectrum, but it's it's much closer than you get with multispectral. You, you've got a lot more detail and you can uh, do a much better job of recreating the spectral signature of something you're measuring. So my guess is there's pros and cons to this. Can we start with the cons first, please? Well, what are some, like not, not necessarily disadvantages, but something you would perhaps have to think a little bit more about when you when you start working with hyperspectral than perhaps with, with multispectral? Yeah, there's something that I think is important to understand is that when you know a company or a space agency is is designing a sensor, they have to consider that there's actually trade-offs. You can't optimize every characteristic of the sensor. So that's this is the case when you're deciding if you're going to make a multispectral sensor or if you're going to make a hyperspectral sensor. So one of the important things to talk about is something called the signal-to-noise ratio. So basically, the signal is the light that is being reflected from objects on the ground and then being reflected up into our sensor, and that's the thing that we're interested in. Noise, on the other hand, is caused by random fluctuations in the measurement, and that can be from the sensor itself or from something external like the atmosphere. So when you use these broad multispectral bands, your signal-to-noise ratio can often is very high because 
your band is like this big bucket that's catching photons of all different kinds of wavelengths. So there's a lot of signal there. For hyperspectral, on the other hand, each band is a much smaller bucket. So it's catching a lot less photons. So you have less signal, which means that if you have noise in your sensor from the atmosphere, it's that much more of a problem. So consequently, to offset this increased noise issue, hyperspectral sensors often will use larger pixel sizes. And that they, they basically are making a bigger bucket to collect light that way. So you've got these larger pixels, which physically are gathering more light, despite the narrow spectral bands. But of course, uh, when you're increasing the size of your pixels, that decreases your spatial resolution. So that for this reason, uh, hyperspectral images tend to have lower resolutions than you would find with a lot of multispectral sensors. So for instance, uh, a lot of the new and upcoming hyperspectral satellites from government space agencies all seem to be around a 30 meter pixel size. So that's a pretty important trade-off, I think. So if you've got an application where maybe the spatial detail from your image is more important than, than that spectral detail, you'd probably be better off using multispectral, like higher resolution multispectral data. There's also another issue which is called the Hughes phenomenon, which is also called the curse of dimensionality, which I think is just a fantastically dramatic name. <laughs> so the Hughes phenomenon, I'm going to kind of wave my hands through this because I don't totally understand the reason for it. But basically, this is specifically related to supervised image classification. So that's where you're labeling objects within an image that you want to classify, uh, and you're showing those examples to your machine learning algorithm. And then you want to then take that trained classifier and use it to detect objects in unlabeled images. So up to a certain point, it's been found that increasing your, the number of your bands can actually increase the accuracy of your classifier. But at a certain point, it's been observed that adding additional bands actually reduces the accuracy. So to counteract this, you either need to use less bands or you need to give it more training data. And since getting more training data is can be fairly prohibitive, this may not be an option. So in some instances and in some applications, you might see multispectral even outperforming hyperspectral despite that extra detail. Or what you might also see commonly is, is people actually throwing away a lot of the hyperspectral bands. That's one of the, the things about having these bands that are contiguous, they're right next to each other, is that they tend to have a high level of correlation between adjacent bands. And so a lot of the time you can get away with using a lot less of them than you actually have access to. So this might lead the listener to think, well, what's the point of even having hyperspectral? But I would argue that it's quite useful to have all that data, even if you end up throwing away a lot of it, because then at least in the end, you have access to the bands you might need for a particular application. Wow, that, that's that's really interesting. Um, so getting back to this idea of curse, uh, the curse of dimensionality, and, and yes, awesome. Great name. Whoever made that name was a marketing genius. <laughs> and the reason why I pick on this one here is because when I first started thinking about hyperspectral, my immediate response was, oh, great, more data, more, more better. But this doesn't sound like it's necessarily the case. Yeah, no, it's, it's not necessarily the case. I'm going to, uh, I guess, have to admit some ignorance to the, the nuances of the Hughes phenomenon a statistical principle that relates back to basically having that many more dimensions in your data 
in order to create a level of statistical certainty between your data uh, and your training data, you need more samples, basically. That's as far as I can take it, I think. But it is an interesting thing because it is counterintuitive to what you might expect. You might expect that having a lot more information content is, you know, would always be a good thing, but not necessarily. And it's kind of a little bit analogous to increasing the resolution of your image data. Now, you might think that uh, higher spatial resolution is always a better thing, but uh, it has been shown in the past that you sometimes get better performance out of your classifier if you have maybe lower resolution data. I think with the innovations in in like deep learning, for instance, it's more and more, you know, you can deal with that extra spatial detail and it's actually a positive thing. But certainly in the past, it has been somewhat more difficult to make a classifier for high resolution data than lower resolution data. There's just something about, you know, it's almost like when you squint at something and suddenly, you know, a pattern comes out of it and it's similar. You're making the computer squint at the data and somehow that teases out the information you're looking for. This is interesting. So uh, again, to just let me try and summarize here. And it's, it sounds like we're, we're giving hyperspectral a hard time because the way I understand it at the moment is we're, we're, we're talking about a lower spatial resolution in general. When we talk about hyperspectral, we're talking about more noise. We've got highly correlated bands and we're cursed by dimensionality. So what are the great things about hyperspectral? Why would anybody want to use this? Yeah, well, I've got to give the other side of the equation. We don't want people to come away thinking that hyperspectral is not worthwhile. There's actually a lot of advantages to the hyperspectral data. So the, the main advantage is that we just get that greater level of, of spectral detail. I said before, it has been problematic in the past to use higher spatial resolution data. But ultimately, if you can get around that, which more and more we can, it's a large advantage. We just can actually see the objects that we're measuring and we can detect much smaller objects and then we can detect cars and, and, and that sort of thing that you just can't do if you're looking at a, a 30 meter Landsat pixel. By the same token, with hyperspectral, we, we have a lot more spectral detail. So this really comes into play when we're talking about really narrow spectral features that uh, many objects have. So as an example, many minerals have distinct spectral features that can allow us to actually separate them from each other. And these are usually very narrow, occurring over just like a small range of wavelengths. So because of this, if we're using a multispectral sensor, we totally miss them. So we might be able to tell you that something is a mineral, but we can't necessarily tease out what kind of mineral it is or, or you know, special features about them. Whereas with hyperspectral, if we have bands that are actually situated on those, those spectral features, then we can actually detect them and we can maybe tell you, you know, this is this type of mineral, this is this other type, which is why hyperspectral is actually widely deployed for mineral exploration. Mapping and monitoring vegetation is another area where hyperspectral really shines. This is because plants tend to have pretty similar spectral characteristics. A multispectral can struggle to tell the difference between one plant and the next. It's very good at telling you that something is vegetation, but not necessarily great at telling you, oh, it's you know this species of tree or this other species of tree. But using the extra detail that we have 
with hyperspectral, we can pick up on the subtle spectral differences between them and actually try and separate them. So for instance, hyperspectral has uh, been used for mapping invasive weed species and separating those from, from the crops that they're infecting or for mapping different species of trees, as I mentioned. We may be able to also detect things like pest infestations or diseases uh, much earlier than we can with uh, multispectral because these are going to manifest early on as in these you know, narrower wave bands, basically. So we can pick up on them with the hyperspectral data, but the multispectral is going to struggle to pick it up until you know, maybe the crops are already dying or dead. Finally, I want to say, I think that another key advantage for hyperspectral, I kind of touched on this before, is the flexibility that you get when you have all that spectral information, even if you don't always use all of it. So a hyperspectral sensor is kind of like a Swiss army knife. So a multispectral sensor, usually when they're designing it, they have a particular application or range of applications in mind, and they might locate their bands and their bandwidths to optimize around those applications. So if I'm looking to do a bunch of divergent different uh, applications, I might have to use data from a bunch of different sensors. But with hyperspectral, I can potentially use the same data from the same sensor to map or, or detect a bunch of different things because I can just go in there and pick the bands that are optimized for each particular application, and then I can get rid of the ones that I don't need. I'm really glad you mentioned that um, because when I was listening to your talk, it occurred to me that all of these examples that you gave, this would be possible within the same image. That's my guess anyway, that the same data set could be split and used in a multiple different use cases. You mentioned the flexibility to pick exactly what bands you needed to use for, for these different use cases. Do you mind explaining to me, please, what the principal component analysis is? Yeah. Um, so that's a, that is a way of you know, intelligently or letting the computer almost decide what information content is important in an image. So it's, it falls under a category of techniques called dimensionality reduction. Principal components analysis or, or PCA essentially is a way of summarizing your data set. So it's a, a transformation that gets applied to your data where it tries to find the key information out of it, the, the most variation within the image and summarize all of the variation within the image in a handful of basically new bands, which are called components. And so, you know, you might have 200 bands on your, your hyperspectral image, and then you run it through PCA, and it's going to, you know, it can spit out 200 components, but within those components, the first three might summarize 99% of the, the real information content in that image. So then you're safe, basically, to just take those three components and discard the rest. So this is a common technique uh, used in, in hyperspectral processing in order to essentially get at the salient details and, and uh, cut through a lot of the noise. And, and this might sound like a very naive question, but are you also using that technique when we talk about multispectral data? You definitely can run PCA on multispectral data, and I've, I've seen it done, and I've done it. I'd say it's just not necessarily as commonly done just because you can even just experiment with your multispectral data and see which bands are you know more important to your your application whereas it's a little bit more onerous to do that with hyperspectral because you're looking through potentially hundreds of bands so 
you can definitely run PCA on multispectral, but it, I'd say it's not as necessary or important to do. So the, the first conversation we, we had around this, I remember you mentioning this idea of special purpose multispectral sensors. And I thought, wow, okay, if we're moving into a world where people are shooting these special purpose multispectral sensors up into space, will we in fact need hyperspectral at any stage? Are those two things going to be sort of mutually exclusive? No, I, I don't think so. I think we're always going to want to have uh, hyperspectral data, even if we don't use it in every instance. Hyperspectral is a great tool for, for research, for instance, to actually figure out what these spectral features are of these objects that we're interested in that we might not necessarily know. So we, we take in a hyperspectral image of it, and then we can actually, you know, find these bands that maybe then we use to create a special purpose, uh, narrow band, uh, multispectral sensor that's targeted at, you know, just mapping this one species of invasive weeds or that type of thing. But we're, we're still not going to have with those, those special purpose sensors, the flexibility offered by hyperspectral. That's interesting. So, so we're back to the idea of using hyperspectral uh, to filter down and figure out what, what is really important here. Where is most of the information contained? And then perhaps using that to inform the decision, okay, what kind of sensor should we create to, to map this particular thing? Exactly. Yeah. Another thing that you actually can do with hyperspectral data is you can basically aggregate the bands in different ways together to create broader bands. Um, and you can, in that way, create synthetic multispectral data so you can for instance i can take my hyperspectral image and i can simulate what that scene would have looked like from landsat and then what it would have looked like from sentinel 2 and what it would have looked like from uh, any number of other sensors so it's very useful for that type of um it's simulation data simulation essentially uh, and that can be useful for for you know calibrating your multispectral sensors, or if you want to intercalibrate two different sensors that maybe have different bands, you can actually create this synthetic image uh, for both of them from your hyperspectral and figure out what the relationship is between them. And since it's the same data underlying it, you know that all of your difference in your image is due to the different bands between them. That is a really, really interesting idea. I, I wonder if somebody's going to listen to that and think, wow, I bet you we could apply some super resolution here and really increase the spatial resolution of hyperspectral data. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good idea. I'm excited to see. There's a lot of interest and investment, it looks like, in hyperspectral imaging. There's a lot of new companies that are going to be, in the coming years, launching new hyperspectral sensors. There's a bunch of uh, fairly new government our uh, space agency uh, hyperspectral sensors. So I think we're actually going to see a lot of new research and new work and new applications coming out of this. So I th I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah, me, me too. I'm really interested in seeing what happens in this space and especially like, like the use cases, the very specific use cases that come out of this. So this is a slightly long-winded question and I apologize for this, but my understanding is that computer vision the algorithms that were designed to work on images taken from our cell phones, RGB images, we can't just copy and paste those algorithms over into the Earth observation world when we talk about multispectral data. So there's a big jump there, at least in my mind. And people have obviously worked very hard over the years to create a library of algorithms that work on multispectral Earth observation data. Are we talking about the same jump when we think about 
the difference between multispectral and hyperspectral in terms of the kinds of algorithms that, that we can use? I think that we're looking at a similar kind of idea, basically, that we're going to need to kind of rework some of those things in order to work with hyperspectral data. I think, you know, it's it's not as if we don't have hyperspectral data in the world already. Um, so some of that work is maybe going on, but just because of, you know, how much more common multispectral has been up until this point, a lot of that work on algorithms and, and adapting computer vision techniques is more mature with multispectral data. So what we're going to need to see is there's going to be some some work to be done, I think, to use hyperspectral in, in those same ways. It's also, I'm sure someone can correct me, I'm not an expert on how every computer vision technique works, but a lot of like the convolutional neural networks that we see these days are really much more focused on the spatial characteristics of the objects that we're detecting than necessarily the spectral characteristics. So it there's that as well to consider. But I think that there's a lot of potential there. And I think that the ability to have these narrow wavelengths and actually see see things beyond the RGB spectrum and see what, what uh, machine learning can do with that type of thing, it could unlock uh, an entire you know world of new applications or, or increasing the accuracy of existing models and that type of thing. But yes, I think that there's going to be you can't necessarily expect to just drop it into the same workflows and expect it to work well. So just before you said, like, we're, we're going to get more and more access to this stuff. Like you, I've seen a bunch of startups you know, working hard to improve the capture rate of, of hyperspectral, hyperspectral data. And so this means that your know, Earth observation scientists, data scientists like you, are going to have more access to this in the future. To those people who are working in the Earth observation industry now, and uh, looking to get into hyperspectral or working with hyperspectral data, is there any sort of free open data sets they can they can start playing around with? Are there any tools that that you could perhaps recommend as well that, that might be useful for them to know about? Certainly, in terms of of data, um, there is a historical archive uh, of data. NASA had a uh, a sensor called Hyperion that they launched in 2000, and I think it got decommissioned in 2017. Uh, and there's uh, an open, you know, all of that data is open and available through NASA. And so that's a, a rich archive of data there. There's also, they have an airborne sensor that they have flown in DoFly called, called Avarice. And I think that data is also available through NASA. And that's, uh, like I said, it's airborne data. So it's not uh, satellite based, but that can be quite useful because it's at a higher resolution than Hyperion, for instance. And uh, you can, you know, then use that data to to simulate, you know, what your what your hyperspectral sensor uh, would would look like, maybe in reality. Those are the main ones that come to mind when I think about open data sets. But there's probably more, especially airborne hyperspectral. There's probably more uh, airborne hyperspectral images that people can find that are open or that you can buy. So it's it's definitely out there in the world. It's less common to find than multispectral, certainly, but there is there is quite a bit of archival uh, hyperspectral data available. Are there any tools or platforms that you could recommend in terms of working with this data? 
Jeez, I spend most of my time in Python these days. And I know that there is some Python packages that I've come across that you can use uh, that are specifically targeted at hyperspectral, in addition to the usual tools for working with with raster data like GDAL and, and Rasterio and that type of thing. So a lot of the tools that are targeted at multispectral, you can probably use as well, because at the end of the day, you're still dealing with an image. So you've got pixels and you've got bands. Uh, you just got a lot more bands in this case. And in terms of you know desktop programs and that type of thing, I, I know that things like ArcGIS and QGIS have gotten a lot better with working with remote sensing data. There's also, you know, in the paid software realm, aside from ArcGIS, is of course uh, Envy. It's more targeted traditionally at uh, at hyperspectral or sorry at imagery generally, but they've got a bunch of hyperspectral tools in there as well. I'd have to think more to find to find more than that. But there's there's I'm sure there's lots of of special purpose software that's you know targeted at uh at hyperspectral just i can't quite summon it to mind at the moment no no that's fine um and i didn't mean to put you on the spot like that interesting that you do most of your work in python how long has that have you always been working in python or did you move from something else to python i mean i learned a little bit of python uh in school but that's basically been something that i've developed post-graduation in my career so when I was first starting out, I still, I, I didn't know very much. And most of my work uh, was kind of manual uh, workflows that were in ArcGIS or in Envy. And as I went along, I realized that a lot of this, this geospatial world really is in, you know, the, the future of geospatial processing really is in, in programming. And, and, you know, one of the top languages being used in geospatial programming is Python. So I've just more and more, you know, learned as I went along and I still, you know, don't think I'm particularly good at it, but I've gotten a lot better and it's unlocks a lot of flexibility and, and possibility for you. If you go in that direction, I, I highly, highly recommend anyone, you know, who's in school, uh, who's looking, you know, maybe thinks that they're going to do this type of thing, really consider learning to code because I think it's uh pretty important so you chose python and you've been you know working with, with that language for some time now if you had to learn another language tomorrow what, what would that be oh god i have colleagues that are uh, very outspoken in their love of r i don't know if i would necessarily pick that one first just because r is overlaps i think in what i can do within python already and now that i've you know worked out the kinks in my python i don't mind so much I'd probably benefit from learning some JavaScript because uh, if you want to do, you know, anything involving work on the internet, I would probably benefit from that type of thing. I'm not sure what else. I'm sure there's lots and my senior software developer colleagues could probably recommend a whole ton of them to me. But, uh, you know, I seem to be, for better or for worse, I've picked Python to kind of place my flag as it were and just trying to improve as I go along. What I've heard from a lot of a lot of sources on programming is is that it's not as important the language that you pick as long as it's you know of course capable of doing what you need it to do and as you learn one language you know that can that can help you if you go and and try and learn something else 
but eventually I'll, I'll probably try and branch out and learn, learn a few different things. But for now, Python seems to be working for what I do anyway. I think that is probably pretty sound advice for a lot of people working in Earth observation as well. Uh, Gordon, uh, I want to say thanks. Like This is a complicated topic, and I think you've done an exceptional job of explaining it to me. I'm sure it was helpful for the listeners as well, so I, I really, really appreciate it. Is, is there somewhere we can go if we want to reach out to you or, or learn more about this kind of thing? You, you mentioned Spark Geo at the start of the episode. Where, where, where can we go if we want to get a hold of those guys? Yeah, so you can check out our website. So that's just sparkgeo.com, all one word. We have a pretty active uh, social media presence. So I think we're on the usual ones, Twitter and, and Instagram and, and LinkedIn and that sort of thing. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can send me an email. I think my email is probably up on the website somewhere. I think it's glogi at sparkgeo.com. Awesome. Hey, thank you very much for your time, Gordon. Re really appreciate it. Great talking with you. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I had fun. This was good. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Gordon Logie. I hope it's clarified some of the differences between multispectral and hyperspectral uh, Earth observation data for you. I also want to say that after the call, Gordon sent me an email with some links to some pretty interesting courses that are available online. So these are all courses focused on dealing with hyperspectral Earth observation data, and I will put links to them in the show notes of this episode. I hope you appreciate the fact that Synergize made this possible. So again, Synergize, the, this is the company behind, behind Sentinel Hub. They are the ones that sponsored this episode, which made it possible. I mean, it's not free to do this work, and I really appreciate the support of companies like this, especially this kind of support, because at, at no time during the conversation, was I given a list of things to read out about that, about Synergize, about Sentinel Hub. At no time did they say, these are the seven things you have to say about us. It was more, I think, people would benefit from knowing this, from knowing more about the differences between multispectral and hyperspectral Earth observation data. So I, I really appreciate that approach, and I am very grateful for their support because people, you know, podcasters, content creators say this all the time, they help make it possible. They do. They don't just help make it possible, they make it possible. Okay, that's it for me. Thank you for tuning in all the way to the end. I really appreciate it. I'll be back again soon. I hope that you'll take the time to tune in then.